Welcome to this week's episode of Off the Shelf. This week, I have Susan Ferber joining me. Susan was born in Buffalo, New York, so we'll, we'll forgive her for the accent, but she's very young, having been born in 1992. She studied English and philosophy at St. Mary's College, Notre Dame, Indiana, so in America. She also spent a year at the University of Oxford, which is obviously where she realised the UK is the best place in the world. After graduating, she moved to the UK, where she earned an MA in publishing from Oxford Brookes University. Susan is now a freelance book editor and has worked on everything from Shakespeare studies to self-help books. She lives in London with her husband and she has written a book, which is why we're here to talk about it, called The Essence of an Hour. And it's her de debut novel, which was published in February of this year. And I'm halfway through, so no spoilers. Welcome to the show, Susan. Hello, hi, thanks so much for having me on today. You are very welcome. I'm always pleased to, to invite, you know, successful writers and, and debut authors on. I'm a frustrated writer in a lot of my life and I always want to pick people's brains for the top tips. Oh, amazing. No, I love, um, well, I've been listening to your podcast, so that's why I reached out because I love, I love hearing about, you know, what books people like and how that influences them as writers or in, you know, whatever they do. So just so excited to be here. Well, we are very, very happy to have you. And as I said, I've been reading your debut novel, The Essence of an Hour, and obviously no spoilers for me because I'm halfway through and no spoilers for the people uh, who hopefully will go out and, and buy your book as a result of hearing you speak today. But the main character is a bit of a bitch. I like, she is. I like that you flag up she's an unreliable narrator. She is very unreliable and yet she thinks she's reliable and at the same point she knows she's not um, so there's a lot of conflict going on there even internally but yeah she is she is very unlikable <laughs> I think I had one I had one agent who I queried early doors come back and say this character is utterly utterly unlikable I can't touch it <laughs> so there you go um, but I hope I hope there is some sympathy there and I hope there is some, you know, relatability, I suppose, in the fact that she is 18, 19. And I think we're all, or at least, you know, certainly I was to some degree, a bit of a bitch, you know, internally, those sort of thoughts, you follow much of her internal monologue. And the way you see the world is so limited and you're so cruel in your judgments of other people, especially other women, um, because you're jealous and you are self-conscious yourself and you can't find your place in the world. So that's what I think I was trying to do with it. But she is, she's pretty nasty, though her, her friends are pretty nasty back to her as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I'm quite at that point yet, but okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's set in, um, I'd say about 60, yeah, 60, 60, 70 years ago. And it's set in small town America. So obviously something completely different to, to how we are now. And you often hear, you should write what you know. Obviously, you don't know. What that was like so why did you choose to write about this era kind of in this setting oh that's a really good question so well i am from a very small town in new york um and i think that that helped to situate the story in a town that's very similar to where i'm from and that allowed me access into a time that was very different than my own um i i think personally i know some authors certainly you know are very capable of doing it but going so beyond what you know um, can be can you know lose authenticity sometimes um, so giving that just slight touch of something you do know can help 
And I was really interested in that time period because like one of the books I'm going to discuss today, The Group by Mary McCarthy, it was a time when um, certain young women were starting to go to university and to be educated. And yet they were ultimately, you know, be given this education and then said, well, now you're going to be a housewife. And they, they didn't have an opportunity to have careers or to explore themselves or, you know, their options were very limited. They're sort of the Betty Drapers of this world. And I wondered what that would have looked like for a young woman who is, you know, obviously very ambitious, who, you know, is very critical of others, is very critical of herself and is obviously very engaged in reading and thinking about the world. Um, so she's in a very limited setting of place and also of time. And I think that that sort of boils over into the way she reacts. I think she would probably be a very different, you know, young woman if she lived today, though I did want to make it as relatable as possible to issues, um, you know, that are still very topical. Yeah, and I think when you're writing about 18 year old in, in a coming of age sense, there are, no matter what generation you're in, there are things that come up consistently in, just in different, in different guises, I suppose. But this is this is the key question I ask all kind of debut authors that come on. When did you st like what was your timeline? When did you start? When did you have the idea? When did you start writing? When did you finish? Did you pitch it when it was finished or unfinished? And kind of how what did your process look like? That's a yeah, that's a really good question, especially on this book, because I actually wrote the first draft when I was 19. Um, I'd been sent home from university with mono, or as it's known in this country, glandular fever. Um, and as one does when they have a, a week off from school, I decided to read Anna Karenina and to start writing a novel. And um, I had a lot of these things in the back of my mind for this story. Um, I was at a very strange university in America where it was very Catholic and very conservative. And, you know, getting drunk on the weekend was highly encouraged, but you couldn't have sex, you couldn't talk about sex and sexual assault was never talked about really openly, even though there were certainly cases and very high profile cases going on at the time when I was there. And it felt very repressive. And I wanted to, I wanted to explore that. So I started this book um, and the first sentence and the last sentence have never changed from the first draft. And I knew what I, I heard this character's voice. I could understand how she would speak and, you know, her, her view of the world. And I sort of sat on that for a long time. So I wrote that in about a month, actually, sort of just blitzed through it. Um, and then just sat on it for years and years. And there is, as you've started it, as you'll know, there's a layer of an older voice that's about 10 years later looking back. And that had always been there as well. But you know, when I'm 19 writing that, it also sounds very much like a 19 year old. Um, so I rewrote it uh, several years later, sort of in my mid to late 20s and rewrote it completely from scratch, um, but would still take some of those uh, authentic moments of what it sounds like to have, you know, that 19 year old voice coming through, um, 18 year old voice coming through, because I think our vocabulary is very, very different when we're that age. Um, just our, our worldview is sometimes just so, it's just so limited and we can only see ourselves. So I wanted to capture that. And again, it just took several, several drafts and, you know, pitching it somewhat, but then going back and reworking on it. And I work as an editor as well. So I'm very, very conscientious and I'm very, um, very critical of my own work all the time. So it was thinking, does this work? Does this not work? Cutting this, um, maybe bringing something back from an earlier draft. 
Yeah, I find that really interesting that you you wrote the original with the with the perspective looking back, but you've kind of oh, that's yeah, that's really interesting. So it's it's a it's a mix of multiple perspectives, but also multiple perspectives from you as you've gone back and read it. Yes, and yes, as I've sort of gotten older and understood. Um, and again, there were parts, you know, that were in there from even sort of later drafts. And I just keep reading and thinking, no, that, you know, she's a grown woman at this point. She's not going to say that. Or she has to have a comment about, you know, why her you know, younger self is saying that sort of thing. Um, so, yes. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, like like I said, I'm really interested in asking people kind of what their journey to publication looks like. And you've actually gone with an independent publisher. Yes, so I went with Valley Press, um, who've been absolutely brilliant. And they're up north in Yorkshire. And I think sometimes, especially with a debut, um, it can be really nice to work with a, a really small independent press because you're taking a risk together and you know they're, they're very much a champion and fighting your corner. Um, and I've always actually worked for independent publishers. So it felt like a really nice, good fit. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I think in, I get the impression that independent publishers are much more, um, you know, welcoming. I mean, I say that, I really don't have much experience in publishers. <laughs> Hopefully I will in the future. But moving on to why we're here, you've chosen five books. So tell I us have. about the first book you've chosen and why. So the first book I chose was um, the book with my favorite character in it. And that is uh, Jane Eyre. Um, with the character Jane Eyre uh, by Charlotte Bronte and now, I have I to say find, sorry I find, this, I find this a really interesting choice so Jane Eyre is one of my mom's favorite books and it's one of the first okay. class, one of the first classics she pointed me in the direction of reading I've tried Jane Eyre I've tried other books by the other Bronte sisters and I just can't do it like I can't do no. it they're also, they're also miserable no oh Okay, I love, I mean, Anne, I'll give it to you. I, some people worship Anne Bronte, never really gotten in that, that much into her. Um, but Weathering Heights, you know, like yourself, Weathering Heights and Jane Eyre it's were- It's miserable. They murdered some puppies. I don't want to read that. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Um, I saw this really horrible, I mean, it got decent reviews, but I saw this really horrible sort of rock musical about the Bronte sisters a couple of years ago when you could still go to live theater. Do not recommend that. Um, I mean, it doesn't sound like it'd be something I enjoy, but I've kind of cut you off there. So tell us why you love Jane so much. <laughs> no, I do love Jane Eyre, but I was going to say I've had a difficult relationship with it um, because what I was going to say, like, you know, like your mom telling you to start with these books as sort of classics. They were some of the first classics I read when I was about 13 and read Jane Eyre and sort of gobbled it up, um, read it again at 18 and I read it, I was reading it on New Year's Eve and all my friends were out partying and I was sort of at home rereading re Jane Eyre and felt like her. I felt like the ugly duckling in the corner. Um, and I think that's why I loved her so much because she stands up for herself. She, you know, is so vocal and says, you know, I'm small, obscure and little. And she gets the guy in the end. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I just want to be like Jane um, so much. So she meant so much to me for so many years. And then I reread it this past Christmas. So it'd been 10 years since I read it. And I was like, this book is bonkers. <laughs> it's really strange and it is miserable. And there's, you know, the first wife, I mean, I don't think this is a spoiler. Can you spoil a book that published in the 1840s? I'm not sure. No, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, but there's the wife in the attic and it's, it's very strange as a, as a book um, because Charlotte Bronte does this whole thing at the beginning where she has Jane 
essentially having PTSD from having to be in the red room locked up. And then you're supposed to really compare that to then Rochester's wife being in the attic. But Jane isn't really that sympathetic to the first wife in the attic. Um, and that really bothered me. And it, I don't know, it seems, it just seems dismissive toward, it seems like a plot device and I want to think further through it. Um, so I've kind of gone off of Jane Eyre slightly because I'm just trying to think through what is going on in it. What is Charlotte Bronte's intention? Does it matter what her intention is? Um, what can we what can we glean from it? But I still, even on even on reflection, this last time reading it, it did still stand out to me that Jane Eyre is she speaks her mind. She she has all these other characters in the book, like Helen Burns, who's miserable and dies of tuberculosis quite early on, and then there's this missionary character Sinjin later on, who's just awful. Um, and he's sort of like, oh, I must go to the, you know, the East and convert people. Um, and, you know, Jane's, she just doesn't have any of that. She, she tells people off. She speaks, you know, she speaks what she feels is important, what she feels is her personal moral code. She will not, she will not violate a, her moral code for anybody. She won't even do that for love um, for Mr. Rochester. And that, you know, I think she's, she is a role model. Um, though I think she should be more sympathetic toward the first wife. That that does bother me. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. But again, I think it might feed into what you've identified with the own character, the character you've written, that at Jane Eyre's age, I mean, teenagers are terrible. Like, does she really have the capacity to understand really what, you know, what the world is? But no, oh, like I said, I want to love Jane Eyre, but I just, I can't, I've tried. I do my I go best. Back to it. I go back to it. Though I will say, I used to love the love story in it, and I've gone off of that. Mr. Rochester is just plain creepy. <laughs> he really is. That's, um, I mean, that, that's a strong theme with Bronte books. There's Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rochester in Jane Eyre, and then in Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff, he's an abusive asshole. Like, I mean, he's it's horrible. Not, I can swear it's fine. But yeah, he's not a nice person. No. And I think, again, like when you read these at 13, you're just swept, you know, swept away with the, at least I was, with the romance of it. And I, again, I'm from a very small town in America. I was not meeting Rochester's and Heathcliff's on, on the street. So um, it very much was a romantic ideal and probably contributed in a great way to me moving to the UK um, in, I mean, in some ways. We, we've got you, so we're happy with that. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> But moving on to the next book you've chosen, which is a, an English classic, so I'm very happy with that. Tell us which oh, book good. you've chosen and why. Um, so I chose Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Waugh, and I chose that as the book that always makes me cry. Um, it, have you read it? I, so I have read it, but in, I, I mean, I don't know if you know, so in the UK, this is one of those books that's always being adapted it is, yes, so the I've most seen, famous adaptation with Jeremy Irons. Yep, so I've seen multiple film adaptions and series adaptions, and I had watched those before I even read the book. And I'm always curious with books like that. I went in, obviously, with a certain expectation, but if I'd read it blind, I'm not sure I still would have liked it. Okay, no, fair fair enough. I think the, I think on to the, the adaptation of it with Jeremy Irons and Anthony Andrews, that is the best adaptation I've ever seen of any book ever. Um, it's so you get like 12 episodes I don't even know how, how many hours it is but it goes through the whole book I mean when I watched it last time my husband and I picked up the copy of the book and we're like no it is going through every single word <laughs> um, so it is it is incredible and I think one could watch that and quite count as reading the book to be honest 
Um, but I just, I love it. It makes me, it makes me cry every time I read it um, or watch the, or watch the series um, because it's a double tragedy. He has um, the main character, Charles Ryder. Again, it's an unreliable first person narrator. And he, you know, he falls in love with a young man at Oxford named Sebastian. And then Sebastian is an alcoholic and he, he loses him. Um, and it's, it's very, it's very upsetting. And yeah, it's also very beautifully written. It's very nostalgic. Um, it, you know, it's about how memory operates, how we pick certain moments in our lives and what that symbolizes for us. And then you get the second tragedy when Charles falls in love with, falls in love with Sebastian's sister. And again, that doesn't, I don't think it's ruining anything to say it doesn't end well, any of these things, because you know that from the first page that he's, he's looking back and you're wondering why, why he's gotten to the place he has um, when he goes back to the family home of these characters and you know, sees that it's all been ruined by the war. And it is a tragedy to me because every single time I read it and go into it, I hope it will end differently. Every, every time I'm like, oh, they're having such a fun time in Oxford and you know, drinking champagne and eating strawberries and um, you know, hanging out with Sebastian's toy bear and all these things, it's just so beautiful. And yet, you know, it has to come and you know that it has to end miserably. And again, again, my book um, that I've written deals with Catholicism. And until I re read Brides Have Revisited, I didn't really know that Catholicism could be such a force in a work um, that you could that that could sort of drive the tragedy. So it really it really influenced me a lot as well. I also come from a big sort of messy Catholic family, so I very much relate to it. Um, so that maybe that, that sort of triggers some of the tragedy for me too, I don't know. Yeah, I see that. And actually, it's funny that you as an American have picked it. So I, in my head, I always equate Brighthead Revisited with The Great Gatsby. I don't know why, yes. but in my head they're like similar. They are quite similar. I mean, they're both, I mean, I equate both of them with like champagne a lot. Um, but they're about similar time periods and I think they're both they're both about nostalgia aren't they they're both about memory and first person narration flawed first person narration flawed so. and the person who's more exciting I think so you know like Nick Gatsby's much more exciting but Gatsby's not narrating it and similarly in Brideshead you know Sebastian's the character we all really care about versus Charles is quite like Nick he's this outsider he's a guest He's looking into this glamorous world that he's not really a part of. Um, and he feels quite staid in comparison to the other characters. He doesn't really have that much of a personality. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. Interesting. Okay, so from two books that I have read to one book that I haven't read, tell us about the third book you've chosen and why you've chosen it. So I picked The Group as a book I think everybody should read, more so as a book I wish more people would read, um, because I don't know how many people have heard of it. And also, I mean, it's published now by Rorago Modern Classics, and not to be mean to Rorago, but the packaging they have on it has like these women walking along the street in New York, and it looks very sex in the city and women's fiction and no nothing against women's fiction or chiclet at all. But I think some people go in with a certain expectation and are quite dismissive of it. Um, and that's actually not really representative of what the book is either. It really doesn't have much of a plot, I will say that. Um, but it's about a young group, a group of women uh, as they graduate from Vassar in the 1930s. 
and follows the sort of the best and the brightest of young women in the country and follows their very quick disillusionment with adult life as they entered the real world in mostly into New York City. And most of it is short vignettes looking at, you know, the different paths these women have taken. Um, but we follow one character in particular. Uh, she's the first one to get married out of the group. And we see her marriage dissolve very quickly. Um, we see her husband is horribly mentally abusive. And it's, it's a reminder of, I think, how much power men used to have in marriages and you know, how dangerous that could be um, for this particular character. And you know, also how these, lots of times the men let the women down and you know, all their hopes and dreams are riding on a successful marriage. And it doesn't feel that long ago for it to be, um, for it to be that, that sort of world. And I think Mary McCarthy, she was such a heavyweight of American literature when she wrote this book in the 1960s. And she was reflecting on her own education at Vassar, which had been, I think, in the 1930s or 40s. Um, but so it would have been sort of a historical retrospect, even when it published. Um, but I think she's she's been forgotten by lots of people. Uh, and she would have been, you know, sort of the equivalent of a Roth in her day, Philip Roth in her day. Um, so I really am sort of want to bring her back into the public awareness and champion her as well, because she's hilarious. Um, yeah. It's a very good scene. <laughs> Yeah, no, sorry. No, it's funny you say that. I had never heard of her, but actually listening. Oh, she's amazing. You, well, listening to you talk about her, um, have you ever read a book, and I'm sure you've heard of the much more famous film called Mona Lisa Smile? Yes, it's very much like Mona Lisa That's Smile, actually. Thinking, yes. It's very much like that. It's like these young women at this very privileged um, university in America. And then, you know, they're just like, why have I had all this education? For, for nothing. Um, and there's a really great scene, the best scene that's probably the most famous in it, where one of the characters goes to get fitted for a diaphragm. Um, she loses her virginity to this very glamorous bohemian man. And he's like, oh, you have to go get a diaphragm. And she goes and gets it. And then he just never calls her back. <laughs> so she's sort of sitting with this package next to her on a park bench. And it's very funny. And I think anybody would really enjoy it. I don't think it is specifically for um, a female audience. I've had, you know, male friends read it and recommend it to me saying, oh, have you read this book? I'm like, yes, I've read this book. I'm so glad you have too. Um, so I wish, I wish, yeah, I just wish more people knew about it. Yeah. Like I said, I'd never heard of it, but I do love Mona Lisa Smile. So maybe that is something I, I, and I also love Sex and the City. So maybe that is something I would really like. So moving on to the fourth book you've chosen, another book I haven't read. Please tell us about it. So this is a book by one of my favorite authors, James Baldwin, and it is Another Country. Um, I think it is his masterpiece. And I also think it is one of the great American novels. Uh, it was the first book I read by James Baldwin. So I think that's why it's my favorite by him. And it's the one of the books, again, like the group that I recommend to everyone and anyone sort of just pushing it into their hands constantly. It um, is, again, a bit like the group in that it doesn't have that much of a plot um, and is more sort of looking at the, the psychological development of characters as they clash against one another. But have you read any James Baldwin at all? No, I haven't, actually. I don't oh. know if... Um... Is he an American? For a treat. Is he an American? He is. He's, I was he's, say, I, I'm not, maybe he's just not that well known over here. 
I think he's becoming a little bit more well known, which I'm really excited about. Um, you know, I he... bet after this episode goes out, I'm getting lots of angry people emailing in saying, "No, I've definitely heard of him. What are you talking about?" <laughs> no, um, he's if that amazing. is you. If that is you, and you'd like to email in, it's info books at gmail.com and I would love to hear from you yes everybody everybody um, should know James Baldwin he is he's just amazing he was um sort of mid 20th century black writer uh writing originally in New York and then lived most of his adult life um in France I believe in the south of France uh, in Paris as well and um, so he's sort of part of the expat community, um, but also part of the New York community. And he, you know, is a prolific um, Black American writer as well. And he's, if I, some people like to start with his essays um, or Giovanni's Room, which is quite short actually. But Another Country is just, it's a meaty book. It is, it is depressing. It is explosive. It is very visceral. As I said, it follows this group of characters, um, some, you know, white liberals, some, um, you know, young struggling black artists in New York in the 1950s, sort of Bohemia. And again, very, they all have their own views of the world and they kind of clash in these, you know, big dialogues. Um, and it's just, it's, I wouldn't say it's a, a treat because it is quite depressing, um, but it is, it is a joy to read just that good of writing. That's how I feel about Baldwin. I'm always in absolute awe uh, that somebody could write this, you know, just, just beautifully. Um, he writes the best sex scenes of any writer I've ever Whoa, read. No yes. way. You've heard that here. That is my bold claim. He is the best writer of sex because he gets the violence. He gets the selfishness. He gets the sensuality. He's very much a sense writer. Um, he's very into smell. He's a, he's a writer where you start reading him and you kind of feel just immediately immersed in his world. Um, and it is one of those books you sort of look up and like, no, I'm not in 1950s New York, Greenwich Village. I am a, I'm in London and, you know, 2021. So he, yes, just start, read anything by James Baldwin. As I said, Giovanni's Room is probably a bit shorter to start with, but Another Country is phenomenal. And I envy anybody who hasn't read it because you have that waiting for you still. Interesting. I'm noticing you do have a thing for a depressing book. I do. I do like a depressing book. I don't think, I think all of my books are really depressing. I thought about picking the category that you offered, uh, pick a happy book, <laughs> a book that makes you smile. And I was like, well, what books are those? <laughs> I do, I, um, but yeah, I do. I do like sort of big, I guess, sort of personal sort of psychological books um, that tend to have very miserable endings. Yeah, no, I, I see that. I see that. So actually going on to the last book you've chosen, I've actually read this book. So I'm feeling very, oh, good. Very, very smug. So tell us about the last book you've chosen and why you've chosen it. It's also quite depressing. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm going to let that slide because I've actually read this one. Good. Excellent. So the last book I've chosen um, is Milkman by Anna Burns. And this is a book that I remember very keenly reading for the first time. Um, though I will say out of all the books I've chosen today, it's the only book I've read once so far. The rest I've read at least twice. Um, but That's very interesting. But I suppose in, in comparison to your other books, it's actually quite a new book. because It's quite a new book. Yeah, 2018, so 2018 yeah. Booker Prize, I think it won. 2018, yes. Yeah, I think yeah. so. 
Um, yeah, and I was just going to say, I just loved it. It was one of those books. I think why it stuck with me so much is because from the first page, I thought, this is a classic. This is, I think everything else I've chosen is such a firm classic and I've sort of inherited being told, you know, this is a, you know, this is a great work of fiction. Um, and I guess, you know, this, you know, this has the Booker Prize sort of stamp of approval on it, but it's really interesting to read a book for the first time and it be like a living classic that's just coming in um, now. And, you know, to be part of, part of one of the first sort of generation of readers of it um, was really, really exciting. And I hope it, I hope it is a book. You know how some books win the Booker and then they, they disappear. I mean, some books never disappear, but they sort of, you forget that it won the Booker. You, you look at a list of all the Booker Prize winners. You're like, what is that book? I've never heard of that in my life. Um, so I hope it isn't one of those because it is, it is phenomenal. I mean, what did you think of it? I really liked it. And I actually can't really, I'm really sorry for that loud siren. Sorry. No, um, I'll try and cut it out if I can, but I'm not sure if I can. <laughs> Uh, no, I did really like it, and I agree with you that it is a bit sad, but I also see what you mean about how it's one of the more forgettable Booker Prizes, which is actually very, very sad because, like, it's a very good book, but I suppose you have to be a good book to win to win the Booker, and what I, what I liked about it, and again, this might just be me not reading very widely before a certain point, is it looks at I'm not sure this is a spoiler, so it's fast forward through the next 30 seconds if you haven't read it. Um, it follows a girl who's kind of being stalked and essentially harassed by an older man. And that was kind of the yes. first real book that I'd read that explored that kind of relationship. I think so for me as well, actually, like aside from Lolita, probably, where it was... Yeah, I still haven't read that, so I'm uh, definitely okay. behind the curve. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy when you do read it. Um, uh, that's like probably the best example of unreliable narrator ever. Um, but yeah, no, I really liked how it just sort of, I'd heard all these things about it, how there are no character names, how it's obviously set in Belfast, but nobody, she doesn't name it as Belfast. And people found that quite confusing, I think. Um, but you, you sort of, you jump right into it. She sort of has a gun to her head, I think in the first opening scene and I don't know I was just there with her on the journey and I really like it did my favorite thing in books um, which again some people really hate this where you have a moment and then it goes explores everything of how you got to that moment so she I think there's one bit where she's like in a chip shop or something and then it's a hundred pages before that chapter concludes where she's just thinking about everything else that led up to that moment where she got to the chip shop and why she thinks everybody's judging her in the chip shop about um about this milkman and you know his stalking of her and I I really like that sort of thing where you yeah where you, you follow somebody's frame of mind and that sort of jumping of memories and thoughts and things like that and I think it does it so so brilliantly well um, and it, it captures a, a time and a place really really authentically but again I think because she doesn't name it as Belfast in the book you can apply it to you know, other cultures um, where, you know, women are, you know, really just violent, oppressive, patriarchal, you know, social structures, and they can't escape. It, it just, that's the feeling I got from it was just how oppressive it must have, it must have been. Um, and I know, you know, the author, Anna Burns, has written other books 
about growing up in Belfast as well. So it was, it, I have read one of her other books after I read this one. And it, it's just really interesting to see how she keeps taking the same material over and over again and reshaping it into different narratives and bringing out different parts of it too. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, yeah, I would like to read some of her other books. I haven't actually read them, um, but she has a few. Interesting. Okay, so you've made it to the end of the, the middle section of the podcast. So if you had to pick one book of the five you've just mentioned to be your ultimate favorite, which would it be? I think I think I would pick Jane Eyre actually, even though I'm on the bit of the outs with it right now, um, simply because there are so many, I think I could reread that book every day and get a different reading out of it. There are so many different ways to approach it, whether from a feminist sort of mind frame or a post-colonial reading of it as well. Um, so I, I, I think I could be quite happily, that would be my desert island book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a very good answer. I mean, I, I don't agree with you, but yeah, fair enough. Okay. No, no. <laughs> that's so, fine. You've made it to the quick fire portion of the podcast. So question number one, and I think I know the answer, fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Um, no, I have been better of recent sort of times, basically since the pandemic of reading some nonfiction um, so I read, but even that's pretty, pretty limited to like author biographies or something like Nora Ephron and David Sedaris, where they write, you know, literary essays, memoirs, but they're kind of fictiony, really. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Interesting. Okay, so question number two, how often do you finish a book or, you know, how often do you read a book? Oh, okay. So, um, well, probably about once a week, really. I try to read a book a week. Uh, again, during lockdown or even just this last year, I mean, I don't know if you found this as well, is there's, you just, there's so much work to do all the time. It feels very fragmented to dedicate time to read. So I have been slower, um, but I try to read a book a week. If I can squeeze another book in during the weekend, I do that. Um, but my, my concentration has gone down, unfortunately. I will not finish a book though sometimes, or sometimes I will put a book down if I don't feel it's the right time to be reading it. So I actually, I started Shuggy Bane recently and I was enjoying it and I thought, no, it just isn't, I'm not concentrating enough on it though. I'm just, I'm just letting it, I'm not taking it in properly. I'm just kind of reading the words and going through it. So I'll go back to that. But sometimes, I mean, Wolf Hall, I got to the last hundred pages and I couldn't bear it anymore. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I felt bad about it. I don't want to be the one to break it to you, but you know, there's three books in the Wolf Hall. Wolf I know, Hall I know. I mean, the other big thing I've never finished is um, Cruise in Search of Lost Time. I mean, I got to like the last 20 pages of the second volume. And I was at the end of a holiday and I was like, no, I cannot face going back to work and finishing this book. So I still need to finish the last 20 pages of that. And there's like another five volumes to go with that. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep working on that. I mean, you life's too short. Yeah. Uh, so question number three, what's your favorite place to read? Oh, outside um, in the sun. Uh, yeah, I love, I love reading on the beach. Um, that has not been possible last year or probably this year, um, but in, outside in general. So I don't know. I think there's just something really lovely about getting a suntan. I sometimes get like a reader's tan. So the rest of me will tan and then my face will be very ghostly white still um, because I'll be stuck in the book. So I've had to develop a way of holding the book in such a way that that doesn't happen so much. Um, but living in this country, you're not always guaranteed a real summer with lots of sun for time for reading. So at home, I like reading in the bath. 
Yeah, see, I've had a couple of people say on read the book. I always think that's a very dangerous sport because what if you drop the book? Do you know, see, okay, this is this is a bad habit of mine. Um, I really don't care. <laughs> I'm really bad. No, I can't, really, fight, can't argue with that, can you? I, I break, I don't know how you are, but I break spines. Like I can't get into a book till I break the spine. And by the time I've broken the spine and then I'm in the bath and it's all humid. I mean, the book's ruined anyway. If I drop it. I really it, feel like I'm going to get some angry emails about this. I think, so. I mean, people get angry about that. Um, yeah, no, it's a really, I think that's sort of, there's two types of people in the world. Some people break spines and some people don't. And, you know, the two cannot understand one another. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. So <laughs> question. Are you a spine four. breaker or a non-spine breaker? I try to avoid it, but I okay. like, I like, uh, yeah, I like proper books. I mean, don't get me wrong, I have, but I try to avoid it. So okay. question number four, do you prefer to read in the morning or the evening? In the evening, um, again, I miss, I do miss commuting to work back in the day. So I would read in the morning then, but at the moment it's, it's pretty much in the evening, unless it's a weekend, in which case I'll read all day or, you know, wake up and read, which is lovely. I'm trying, I'm trying to get into a habit of reading when I wake up, but that never seems to work. I'm sort of immediately on email and getting on with things, but I think that would be a nice way to start your day. Some people recommend it. I don't know. I'm not good at it. Yeah, I think I could never read in the morning. I just don't have it in me, I don't think. <laughs> you never know, you never know. So the final question of the whole podcast, and this one does put people on the spot a little bit. Okay. What book are you most looking forward to reading next? Oh gosh, I mean, I bought like a hundred <laughs> in the last three weeks or whatever since, I haven't bought a hundred, don't worry. Uh, but I've bought a lot since bookshops reopened and secondhand bookshops and charity shops. Um, so I have I have quite a healthy, healthy pile um, to get through this summer. Um, but I'm really, I'm really excited. I found a couple of new authors I like a lot during lockdown. So one's named Alison Lurie, um, she won the Pulitzer back in the 80s. Again, people have forgotten her. She died, I think, in December last year. Um, so I've been finding more and more of her books, um, which are really exciting. And then uh, this is a fun book. This is not a sad book um, for me. Um, I like the author E.F. Benson. Um, he wrote these really just funny books um, called Map and Lucia back in, I think, the 20s and 30s. And they're a whole series of books. So I finally found the one I was missing in the series, at a charity shop over the weekend. Oh, so I love it when that happens. I know, it's really good when you find a book that you've been waiting for for ages and you get it for like two pounds. So I'm excited about that. And then there is a new literary biography out about Barbara Pym, who's another author I like a lot. Um, it's sort of about 750 pages. So I'm not sure when I will read that, but looking forward to it when I get around to it. <laughs> yep, perfect. They all sound like great choices and I mean they're kind of corrupting the question here but are you writing what are you looking forward to writing at the moment? I am I mean I again that's something I try to do every morning <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way um, but yes no I'm always excited to get into writing a new story so I am working on something new at the moment and onto a second draft which uh, I write very very quickly um and then edit ferociously over and over again quite um, meticulously so I'm on that stage but because I work as an editor I, I quite enjoy that stage some writers don't enjoy that stage 
no I don't like I don't like that stage (laughs) (laughs) I think you can sort of disassociate yourself from it um from the work at least I can I don't I don't know but I, I like it so we'll see how that comes along do you know what I think it is? I was, I was saying this to someone the other day, actually. It, I compare it to when me reading my own work is like someone, like a normal person, hearing a recording back of their own voice. You know how people don't like it? Uh, well, I'm not going to listen to this because I hate the sound of my voice, like my weird transatlantic accent, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, get, I get that. No, fair enough. Well, it was lovely to have you. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm midway through your book and I am loving it. So hopefully- Oh, thank you so much. If everyone else wants to go out and buy it, then I encourage them to do so. And if listeners have enjoyed hearing from you, where can they find you? Oh, they can find me on Instagram at um, Susan Ferber Writes, or you can visit my website at susanferberbooks.com. Excellent. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Bye, Susan. Thanks so much for having me on, Phoebe. Keep well. Bye-bye.